0: Welcome to the Secured Podcast. I'm Mike Matranga. We're in the ASAP Studio here in Houston, Texas. Today we have Flo Rice with us. Flo, thank you for joining us. Um, Oh,
1: thank you. I am just—it's a privilege to be here with you, Mike. Well, thank
0: you. I appreciate it. So, um, Flo, we want to talk to you today about the Santa Fe tragedy in May 18, 2018. Uh, You were a victim in that um, horrific tragedy that we continue to see happening in the United States on a regular basis. It seems like these particular types of things are are not going away Um, and um, you know we uh, we're living in a society which is becoming more uh, violent every day. Mm -hmm. Uh, We have politics that are dividing us um, and I believe frankly are getting in the way of any type of real progress both at the state and federal levels. Um, So Do you mind sharing with us just kind of your story, initially starting out with your story, and you know, May 18th of 2018, and we'll walk through a few things.
1: I was a substitute teacher at Santa Fe High School. Um, In 2018, that was, I was kind of thinking that might be my last year. My youngest daughter was graduating, and um, that was the last Friday of the school year. And I was in the, I was gonna be in the gym that day. Mm As substitute, Joe, you know, we didn't have any kind of training. We had no training whatsoever on emergency practices. Uh, we didn't have a key to any door. Um, we had already, my anxiety had been high after Parkland, because it really brought back the concern of shootings. Um, then we'd had. uh, We'd had a scare at the school and a lockdown, and they never determined what that was Right. Uh, just a couple months before. But at that point, it, it really made me more aware. I started looking around my classroom and thinking about, I can't lock a door. We've asked for keys for years. So I'll just have to figure out how to barricade this room. So every class I sat in, I would look around the room and think, what furniture do I have? Do I have enough students to help me push this furniture? Uh, So I I was really looking forward to being out of the school um, at the end of 2018.
0: Right, you said in, so Parkland happened February February. 14th of 2018. Uh And then Santa Fe happened May 18th of 2018. You said you all had a scare prior to the actual tragedy at Santa Fe so any, any between February and May mm-hmm. when do you remember if it was uh you know March April uh, do you recall how far I
1: think it was a couple weeks after Parkland so maybe okay. in uh, March okay
0: and so we had a lockdown Parkland happens in February in March you guys have a scare uh, that sent the school into a lockdown and then in May the tragedy so let's backtrack to the scare after the scare Um, you said there was no resolution to that? Right. Okay. And even though there was no resolution, I know you talked about not having a key or access to certain things to even lock down. After the scare, did anything change? Were you ever uh, trained on how to lock down, what the lockdown meant, um, where to go, how to access rooms, what to do?
1: Absolutely nothing um, okay. you know of course we as a substitute you can only push for keys so hard because right. then you'll just lose your job if you become an issue so right. um, yeah no still no keys to lock any doors had absolutely no training. we except a fire drill that's all we knew Right. how to do.
0: So at that time, you're familiar with the standard response protocol. At that time, it was lockdown, lockout, shelter in place, mm-hmm. hold, and evacuate. Um, when you did, when you became a substitute teacher, did y'all undergo any type of training that would articulate what each one of those did no. meant or what you no. were supposed to do?
1: Absolutely nothing. Okay,
0: well, good. Um, so I guess what I'm getting at is, you you had Parkland, you had the scare. There was never any prior training there was never any training after the scare and then you have Santa Fe happen Mm -hmm. uh, which you were a victim so we'll get back into the training component here in a little bit I want to talk about that and kind of how we've progressed moving forward here in the state and throughout the nation since May 18 2018 but take us to the morning of the shooting do you mind talking about that a little bit
1: so that morning when I walked in to school, I saw Ann Perkins and Cynthia Tisdale, they were chatting in the hall, I stopped, we talked about our classes for the day, and then Cynthia Tisdale went in to the art room. And Ann and I were in the gym, just not that far down the hall, just there was a few locker rooms in between us in the art room, but the kids were in there playing basketball, we didn't hear anything um, unusual. Then the fire alarm went off, which we noted was strange because there had been a fire drill the week before so that should have been a clue but we just got up and got the kids and started heading down to the closest doorway Ann had girls basketball she was her kids she only had a few kids they were a little further down the hall than I was Um, and the last thing I remember I glanced down the hall, saw Ann, I was still trying to get some of the, the boys were still trying to make their last basket, right. you know, and trying to get them in the hall. When the sound I heard, I didn't know it was a gunshot. I thought it was a bomb because the sound was just vibrated through my whole body. It was deafening. I did not know what was going on. and I. I somewhat blacked out. I I knew where I was and I knew the door was ahead of me, but I I, I don't remember seeing anything after that point. But I just remember the door was in front of me. I kept going. I heard again that sound. I thought it was another bomb blast. And I felt myself falling and I thought it was from the blast, you know, kind of like you see on TV and you're in slow motion and you're falling. And I hit the ground face first, and I look up, and a few feet ahead of me on the sidewalk, because I'd fallen kind of through the outside doorway, I see Ann, and she, she looked like she just laid down on the sidewalk, and she's facing away from me. I can't see anything wrong. I just see her back, and it's dead silence all of a sudden, and I, I'm totally confused. Because I try to move, I can't. I I managed to sit up, and I realized one of my legs is completely twisted and broken. And then I look at my jeans and realize there were bloody bullet holes in my jeans. Mm -hmm. That was more horrific than thinking there was a bomb. Because then I knew someone was hunting me they had shot me and they were probably just feet from me around the corner where I I didn't know but the sheer horror was just nothing like I had ever felt before I immediately felt like I needed to get out of the doorway because this shooter could be right on my, coming right behind me I still had my bag that I grabbed, and I got my phone out and I drugged myself as best I could since I was shot through both legs out of the doorway and what I kind of thought was away from the, the shooting but um, I was literally underneath the window I had been, we had been shot through. And I called, called my husband Scott. I didn't think to call 911. I just called him. He didn't answer the first time. And I laid on my phone literally because I was, if the shooter came back through, I didn't want him to see me. I wanted him to go past me and not shoot me again. And so, moving as little as I could, laying on the ground, I called him again and told him I had been shot and then hung up. <laughs> And um, because I was so afraid the shooter, right. <laughs> I could hear the glass still falling through the window that he shot me through. And I was afraid he was just gonna be over me, looking at me, shooting me again. Um, so I, I called Scott two or three times, trying to explain to him where I was. Um, and then at some point I heard an officer running and I, you know, I, I knew it was an officer, I could you know, hear his gear, and I started to move, and then I heard his radio say, we don't have eyes on the shooter. So then I was afraid to move. I didn't know what to do. I'm, I mean, I knew there was at least you know, one officer nearby, but I, they never came over and um, checked on me. They didn't touch me in any way. I did not communicate with them.
0: Was the fire alarm still going off at this time? The
1: whole time, the yeah, the fire alarm is is was blaring, um, and then I could hear gunfire. I heard more gunfire, continued gunfire. So I I had no clue what was going on, you know, and the horror that was going on in the art room on the other side of the wall from me. Um, it's just so hard to comprehend when you're right. when you're in it and all I knew was i i was on the outside of the building now and i wanted i wanted out of there and then eventually um, i heard i heard our car and scott managed to find me um,
0: so how did you so you you talked about <clears throat> running and feeling like you were falling and then falling face first at that point, you were—I'm assuming—you're were kind of in the threshold of the door, mm-hmm. half in, half out. When you realized you had been shot, yes, due, you know, your legs were bleeding through your jeans, and you said you heard an officer. Um, d- did that officer stop to assist you? No. Didn't. Um, didn't stop to check like your vitals or see if you had no. a pulse. No. No. Were you sitting up at that point, or were you still laying down?
1: Well. I was laying down I, as soon as um, I was, realized I had been shot, I was in the doorway, I drugged myself out of the doorway, laid down and then that's when I, I heard at some point then an officer come by.
0: Okay.
1: I knew he was very close. I mean he was right there. Right. It wasn't a, in the distance. I knew he was right next to me somewhere. Right.
0: And you, and you described Officer Banda. Can you talk about his involvement? Yes. Okay.
1: Um, I heard my husband pull up in the car and I heard him yelling, that's my wife. Something went on, I didn't know what, and then I hear Scott say, she's alive. Mm -hmm. And at that point, then Officer Banda came over and touched my shoulder and I, I laid there with my eyes closed. I opened my eyes and he said, put your arms around my neck. And I did, and he scooped me up and ran and took me to the car. But he apparently um, was under the impression from an, that I was dead. Another officer had told him that Ann and I were both dead. But
0: no one had ever checked but your pulse to see me. if you were deceased. Mm-mm. So they just assumed that. Right. You know, which makes me kind of wonder, you know, in other tragedies, um, are we doing something wrong now, we understand that you know, you've got to stop the killing, you've got to stop the shooting, but one of the things that, that I have always asked is, why do we have to have an influx of 200, 300 officers to address a single or even a, two shooters? Um, at some point, law enforcement has to get disciplined enough to know that it doesn't take 200 people to contain uh, a single or, or even two shooters. Mm-hmm. That there are secondary actions which are equally as important, such as rendering aid to the wounded. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, one of the things that we talk about at our company is empowering people, and we'll get into talking about training individuals here in just a little bit. But um, let me ask: Was uh, Miss Perkins was she a substitute teacher as well? Yes. Okay. So I know that from that event, uh, there's been some legislation here in the state of Texas. Uh, that you've been an advocate for yourself your husband and other people have been advocating for and uh, we're always executive director of security at Texas City Uh, we had you come talk about you know the importance of substitute teachers you know one of the things that that people don't understand is substitute teachers are absolutely crucial in public education they fill the gap when you know staff and manpower can't be filled and so um, You know, I know one of the things that we did in 2018 was uh, we went to a system that that, uh, we put access control readers on every every, uh, classroom door, every exterior door throughout our district. Uh, We were one of the first districts to do that at that magnitude because we wanted to give substitute teachers the ability to access those doors uh, in the event of a crisis, any door essentially, um, therefore increasing their chances of survival. And so I know you came and spoke to us, and we're gracious to have you, but uh, can you talk to us about the legislation that you've been advocating for substitute teachers for?
1: Sure, yeah. And, and I want to mention, had I gone back into the school system, your school would have been the only one in Texas City I would go to. Oh, well, because, I appreciate it. Um, it. It was amazing, and that, that I would have felt safe there, but I just don't see that that anyone else has achieved that level. I
0: appreciate it. Would it would it surprise you to learn that a lot of that stuff that I did has been changed significantly uh, yeah, due that, to personal opinion and different philosophies?
1: Yeah, that, that's sad.
0: That's, a, that's sad. It's that's a sad. tragedy but yeah. you know it is what it is. Um, you know we've got to take the good with the bad and you know keep fighting the fight and so but thank you I appreciate that.
1: People don't realize you know, on any given day, you could have an entire wing of a school full of substitute teachers yeah. because every English teacher is out, you know, for training. And you know, when that happened at Santa Fe, that would, no door was going to get locked if there had been a lockdown. Yeah. We, nothing was going to happen. We had no way to protect those kids because they did not trust us with a key, but yet we were trusted with the, the lives of those children.
0: Yeah, and that's a, that's a tragedy. I mean. You know, um, in your particular case, you know, you had nowhere to hide.
1: Right. I, I, right? Know what I, I don't even know, you know, what do you do in a gym? Yeah. Yeah. We had-
0: and those are things that I think through the advocacy that you and your husband and others have been doing has changed. I don't think we're there yet. I don't think that, that every school district in the state of Texas or in the nation has a plan for that, Those, these are the little, the little things that mean a lot that they're not thinking about is substitute right. teachers. you know, Like you said, at any given time, you could have a whole wing of, of, uh, of, of substitute teachers mm-hmm. in an area that has not been properly trained in the SRP or, or just basic protocols and what to do, what not to do, or even how to secure themselves and their kids in a classroom. Right. And so, um, talk to us about the advocacy, advocacy component of what you guys have been doing the last five years and how things have changed from a legislative standpoint.
1: Well, after the shooting, uh, we met with our state representative, Bonin. He came to my home, was very kind and listened to my story. Um, we talked about the issue with the keys. although the keys didn't impact me that day as far as having a key to the gym. Cynthia Tisdale should have had a key to the art room. She should have had her art room blocked. Um, She should have had a key that would have locked the closets and um, she lost her life that day. Uh Also, uh, we knew that there were many classrooms that did not have working phones. And one of those classrooms was next to the art room. There was a substitute teacher in there he could not call 911. There was no cell service, and the classroom phone would not call 911. So, his, he didn't know what to do. He saw the, the shooter. His um, only choice was to pull the fire alarm. And that's why the fire alarm went off, because he was trying to get help to that part of the building. So, these are the issues that I tried to bring to the forefront simple things that could be changed. As a result, Uh, the the governor had passed SB 11 school safety bill, which we thought was great. I mean, it encompassed threat assessment, mental health, and then the small things that had personally impacted substitutes that we would have access to locked doors and phones would work. But what we didn't know, and I think, Mike, you're the one that actually clued us in on this, um, was that the schools really did not have to follow it. Uh We thought it was a law. Governor signed it, you have to do it and then you mentioned that you'd heard rumblings that school districts were refusing to do it. Uh So Scott and I went to the school safety center and talked to Kathy and she explained to us that they actually did not have any authority over the schools. We went to Mike Morath at the TEA and he said the same thing. There was no one to hold the schools accountable if they did not follow these safety guidelines. So it was, it was meaningless. You know that everything we worked for after the shooting that we thought would be done to save the next school was totally meaningless.
0: Yeah, you know, um, myself and and you and Scott and others um, have been very involved in the legislative process from. 2018 until current day, um, you know, my first day on the job, June 11th of 2018, after, you know, being offered the position at Texas City, the first day I was at the Senate talking about, um, you know, from my perspective as a as a former United States Secret Service agent and my perspective of, you know, how we get a hold of this. Um, the problem is is that we have politicians on the left that are talking about defunding police or removing law enforcement from the school environment and then on the right you've got you know um, politicians that are pushing political narratives to arm more teachers or put an officer in every in every uh, school which I, 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 I'm okay with that. Um, but. Providing more resources like ballistic shields and whatnot, when in fact, what we know through data and research of at least three decades, is that how we get held of this is through the comprehensive planning, and the behavioral analysis of people who want to do harm, and you know I've been testify, you know, you know I've testified multiple times before the Senate, and I always say the same thing. The foundational component to all of this is behavioral threat assessment, understanding who wants to do harm and why, and then having a comprehensive plan to include substitute teachers as if they are full-time employees, giving them the same access, um, identifying who your assets are, having conversations prior to an event happening of whose roles, whose responsibilities, um, you know or what the, what those roles and responsibilities are and how they're defined so that on the day that it happens you don't have another Santa Fe or another Uvalde where just people are self dispatching and doing whatever it is that they feel needs to be done when in reality it needs to be a well ma- well orchestrated event mm-hmm. and it's hard to do that because we have a law enforcement, Uh, ideology is that the more officers we have the better position that we're in and and I disagree with that. I think that it's great to have 300 officers to show up but what's not good is that this idea of everyone is going to be the person who takes out the shooter or contains the shooter it's that's just that's that's not a reality. The reality is there's only going to be a couple people that that are needed or required to do that um, but there's other secondary actions that those other 280 officers need to be doing like establishing a perimeter, um, communicating with parents, establishing the reunification zone uh, or area. More importantly, there's other secondary actions that need to happen on the scene like rendering aid to you. Mm-hmm. Like you said, you heard an officer running, you could hear them because of their, their um, you know, equipment. Um, But they assumed that you were deceased, Um, but no one even stopped to check your pulse, see if your vitals, if you even had vitals. Um, Which leads me to wonder, of all of these events, to include Santa Fe, were there some people there that could have been saved if those officers had not been fixated on going always to the shooter but instead rendering aid. You're just as much a hero to save a life as it is to take a life. Mm -hmm. And um, I think that's one of the problems that we're seeing in the United States that no one wants to talk about because it's a delicate area. It's like no one wants to talk bad about a veteran. No one wants to talk bad about a law enforcement officer or why they do certain things. Mm -hmm. But this is, I believe, a training block that we're running into and you know, people can disagree with me all day long, but if you look at historical data of Columbine, of Sandy Hook, um, of Parkland, of Santa Fe, of Uvalde, this mentality of everyone self-dispatching and going to the scene is proven not to work. Right. And so we've got to get better at training those individuals that are already on the scene, whether it be the law enforcement officer, SRO, uh, whether it be a full-time employee or a substitute teacher, they all need to be trained to a certain standard. Um, let me ask you, so you said you heard the officer passing you. Um, is that, do you recall any other uh, officers or other staff or adults passing you or kids running out the door? Or?
1: I didn't hear anyone run past me. I didn't see any, you know, I I don't think anybody else, any more kids came out the door. Mm -hmm. Um, But I could hear, I knew the officers were right there. I could hear them. Okay. So, you know, if I hadn't, if I hadn't had my phone to call my husband, I don't know what would have happened to me. Because I, even if I would have sat up, I don't know if they would have done anything to help me because they had nowhere to take me. right. There was no ambulances there at the time. At the they weren't letting them in.
0: Really, at the time that you realized you were shot, you say you, you looked down and you saw that your leg was bleeding. Can you describe, like your, uh, the senses that that you had? Like, was there a heightened sense of smell or, or. Um you know, quietness or calm, how did your body react to that? Um, because in a heightened sense of stress, your body does some very weird things. Do you recall what that felt like? Did things get very quiet or were you super in tune and hyper in tune to your surroundings? Can you, can you explain that?
1: It was a eerie quiet to me because I had just heard, it had been so unbelievably loud um, at that point when I when he shot me and it, it and I, you know I don't even know you, I cannot remember if the fire alarm was still going at that point or they t- but it just was silence I heard nothing all I knew was that I had to get out of that doorway mm-hmm. with everything I had and it was basically just with my arms to crawl right since both my legs were shot um, but I, and I could smell I remember. I think I could smell the gunpowder because the fire. I could still hear them firing. I could smell the dirt. I was laying in the dirt, but um, I could and I could hear the glass from the window falling constantly. That had been shattered, because every time I would hear a piece of glass fall, I thought it was the shooter pointing his gun through the window at me.
0: Right. When when you heard the first couple shots. You said it was loud at first. You you thought it was a, a bomb. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you recall? What made you run? Because I'm assuming you. I'm assuming, and correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, what made you run I don't think the,
1: I. I don't think I ran.
0: You, think you just walked. And I
1: think I just I was already walking towards the door. Mm-hmm. And I after the first. After the first one. Okay. After the first boom that I couldn't, I couldn't comprehend what it was except a bomb. I just remember thinking, the door's in front of you. You just have to walk out the door.
0: Mm-hmm. And, and was the fire alarm going off at this point?
1: Yes, that's, yes. it would and, have been going off then, because that's what, what got us out in the hallway.
0: And the, that's what was gonna be my next question is, do you think that if the fire alarm had not been pulled that you might you have just held where you were in the gym we After didn't hearing,
1: yeah we didn't well we didn't hear the shots. Yeah. We never heard the gunshots from the gym for some reason and I don't know you know there was a couple rooms in between us and the art room and then the gym's already noisy and the basketballs right. are bouncing and it we So we did it was the hear.
0: fire alarm that that initiated you leaving the gym into the hall then once you're in the hall you hear the first boom.
1: Yes. Okay.
0: But it was the fire alarm that that was pulled. That you know, basically told you to leave. And I've always talked about that. Um, is you know, a lot of the times these these things can be used as a distraction or as a as a method to uh, get people out of where you know a safe environment into an open area. And um, I've always briefed people. You know, regardless of what the fire marshal says I understand what the fire marshal says and I'm not advocating anybody break any fire rules or laws I'm just telling you from my perspective just because a fire alarm is going off you know I always tell people just wait a second take right. a few seconds take a tactical pause and, and, and figure out what's driving you you know what's driving you to want to run outside immediately do you smell smoke do you see fire mm-hmm. um, Give it a minute because it could be a diversion, and it's and you know I know that 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 well we all know that the fire alarm was pulled by a staff member who was had good intentions and mm-hmm. I'm not faulting that person at all, but um, you know I guess my advice to people would be is just to to wait wait just wait a, right. wait a few seconds 20, 30 seconds, and just make sure that it is what it is right. Because it's that fire alarm that got you out into that hallway, and then you ended up being shot. And so it's just an unfortunate series of events, you
1: know. And Ann and I had both noted that we just had a fire drill last week. And so that, you know, hindsight should have clued us in that maybe we need to... I don't know what we would have done, though. We still did not realize where the gunfire was coming from. There was...
0: So you were shot in, in the back of your legs, is that? Through the side. Through the I was, side. Yeah,
1: I guess, I, I I mean, I ended up, I had bullet holes in the front somehow. I, right. I don't know how he managed. But it was, He, um, I crossed his path I was, when I was heading out the door and he was to the side of me in the hallway. I didn't see him, at least I cannot remember seeing right. him.
0: Right. Yeah. And so th- this was a shotgun, obviously, is what he used, um, you know, one of the, common weapons that we see in the United States is an AR-15 being used in these particular types of events but he actually was unique. Um, he used a, a, a pistol uh, or a revolver from what I understand was a mm-hmm. revolver and a shotgun which is uh, very unique and so you know one of the things that we talk about uh, you know I'm, I'm a Second Amendment advocate I'm, uh, I believe in the Second Amendment but I also believe that we need to be responsible you know, everyone talks about the NRA, everybody talks about the Second Amendment being our constitutional right, I truly believe that. But I also think that as an outdoorsman myself, someone who is a Second Amendment advocate, I also understand that we, we must be responsible uh, with weapons. Um, and so one of the proposed legislation moving forward Uh, is to make it uh, illegal for uh, an an individual under the age of 21 to purchase a long gun because right now in the state of Texas, uh, an 18-year-old kid, because I've got got an 18-year-old, they're still kids to me, uh, can purchase a long gun. And it's never made sense to me, being an avid outdoorsman and owning multiple weapons myself, of why a kid can purchase an AR-15 or a shotgun to cause you know how much damage Mm -hmm. Uh, but they can't buy a pistol. And yet we have politicians on the right that are fighting that. It makes no sense. We have kids that, are, that can't drink alcohol until they're 21 years of age. Why, why allow them to buy an AR-15 or a shotgun under the age of 21? If, what, what are your thoughts on that? Do you think that the re- age should be raised to 21 to purchase a shotgun or a rifle?
1: I, I do. Um. In our instance, our shooter got his guns from his parents. parents. So, what we have tried to do is advocate for the things that could have made a difference in our shooting. Yeah, and so that's one of them that we've tried to advocate for laws that would hold parents accountable when their kids get their weapons, and that's gone nowhere. I, to me, that's yeah. just common sense. You know, let's let's hold them accountable. Obviously make them lock you know lock up your weapons if you have underage kids um, it goes nowhere. Yeah
0: I, I, I agree um, with you I've, I've you know spoken to multiple legislators um, you know at the state and federal level and I've been an advocate for that I mean you know I personally don't think that kids that are 18 years old should be able to buy an AR-15 or a shotgun um, you know, I uh, believe that uh, we, we have to be responsible with our weapons. We have to be true stewards of society and, and not, and listen, here's the thing. It's not going to stop everything. Right. Um, but it would have stopped Yavaldi. Uh, yeah. That shooter bought two AR-15s at mm-hmm. the age of 18 years old. It would have stopped that one. Now, could he have gotten it through other means? Of course he could have but it would have made it harder
1: the more difficult for him we can to make do
0: it. that, yeah. right? And so, um, you know, I, I, it really irritates me to hear people just say, you know, it's our constitutional right. Right. Well, when it's not you that's been shot, or it's not your child that's dead, um, then it's easy to say that, you know?
1: Well, another thing that enabled our shooter was that he could order ammunition. Yes. He ordered it online, checked a box, and said, I'm 18, even though he wasn't. Mm -hmm. It was extremely easy. Mm -hmm. Um, Thank goodness. Now, actually, um, that was through Lucky Gunner, Mm -hmm. and because of a lawsuit that we filed against them, they have now changed that, and they are verifying age. Right. So that that's an important step. I mean, at least you can't. At least you can't get the ammunition if you can get your parents done something.
0: Well, well, I think you know what we're. (laughs) I think what you and I and, and Scott and others—we're we're fighting. We're, cont- we're going to continue to fight. I'm not quitting, and I know you guys are not going to quit either. I'm, I've made this my mission. Uh, we're going to continue to fight for these things, um, and you know, raising the age to 21—I'm going to continue to fight for that because I think that's what we should do. Mm-hmm. You know, if people make the argument: well, our, law, our, our um, uh, military kids, 18, 19, 20, can, can go to war, right? But they're never left alone with a weapon in a training environment. Um, they always have a, you know, military supervision while they're possessing that weapon and handling that weapon. And they
1: go through a significant amount of training. Significant. They have mental health training. Yes. And, you know, the shooter in Allen, Texas.
0: Mm-hmm. Just a couple weeks ago.
1: Yeah. So he was let go of the military when he was in his basic training still for For mental mental health health
0: issues, right. And so I'm just so frustrated with our politicians when you have, you know, they ask myself and other subject matter experts, and then people like yourself who've experienced this to come in and talk about the things that we need to change. Uh, But yet we provide this information based in facts, based in research and data, based in personal experiences and then they do something completely different. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know I don't know how we change that. Uh, we have to just keep fighting and keep plugging along. but I do appreciate the small steps that we've made with you know changing the legislation for subje- uh, for substitute teachers to require them to be trained just like a full-time employee and have access. So that's a small victory. SB11, you know, I had high hopes for. Um, I can tell you that the way that we uh, testified in in support of and and helped draft that bill, it it did not end up the way that it should have been. Uh, And what I mean by that is talking about um, uh, the compliance component of schools required to do audits every three years. And and Dr. Uh, Martinez Prather is correct. Uh, The Texas School Safety Center does not have a regulatory component so that makes me ask the question, why would the governor or why would the legislature give the Texas School Safety Center that responsibility if they have no authority or teeth to enforce in the first place? Right.
1: There was no teeth in SB 11, and that's why we had Uvalde.
0: Absolutely, nothing in nothing in SB 11 prevented Uvalde from happening.
1: And it should have. It should have at least slowed it down. The doors should have been locked, at least he couldn't have as walked right in, but in the House report mm-hmm. on Uvalde, they said that they left doors unlocked for the convenience of substitute teachers who did not have a key.
0: And this is four years after SB 11? Yes. Four years, or three years after SB 11, four years after y'all's tragic event. What are we doing? We have to continue to keep moving forward. One of the things that I've been advocating for is an Office of Inspector General to oversee this compliance component for the state that directly reports to the governor. Now we have a new chief security officer that's over TEA. Um, Although I believe that that's that's a step in the right direction, this has to be completely separate from Texas School Safety Center, Texas, uh, education agency, a completely separate regulatory agency so that there is no conflicts of interests, no one's personal feelings getting in the way, and you're just enforcing the rules and the laws. You know, we noticed, uh, we know that after Uvalde, um, you know, like I said, 1190 districts, only 190, 180, something like that were compliant, maybe close to 200 were compliant with the, the the mandate from SB 11 from three years prior actually four years prior when it was passed and then um
1: but they said they're compliant Uvalde said they were compliant Uvalde but was they compl- but they weren't they really weren't their EOP
0: weren't. was but their their auditing wasn't
1: they right? were not yeah they were substitutes did not have an, any way to access right. schools and that's why it wasn't locked up
0: yep and so what are we doing I mean it's it's so Frustrating for me to continue to be fighting this fight, talking to you, talking to Rosie, talking to other victims, um, uh, having laws or mandates on the books, but who's overseeing that? You know, um, there's
1: no accountability.
0: There's no accountability. It's it's too big. Um, there's multiple ways that we could be doing it more effectively, um, but I've had I mean I've had flat out agencies tell us we don't want this data. Uh, we don't want this data because we have a duty to report if we have it mm-hmm. and that therefore makes us liable. And so, um, that, that's hard to swallow when you're talking to an agency, uh, that's supposed to care about this stuff. And I'm not saying they don't care, um, you know, liabilities just comes with the job. You have to understand that. You have to accept that you you know, you're taking on this job you want to fulfill the shoes of X, Y, and Z, then guess what, The liability comes with that. And if you don't want that, step aside, let someone else do it. Right. I'd be happy to do it, but I don't think that that's what they want because they know that I'm going to do it and I'm going to hold people accountable. And, and so it really begs the question, people say they want accountability, but do they really want accountability, you know? So we're well, moving on. Um, what What are your thoughts on you know training staff to a certain standard of you know basic first aid, CPR, chest seal application, tourniquet application, everybody having that same standard of 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 training? What are your thoughts on that?
1: i I hate that that's something we have to do. Um, but obviously, everyone needs it. Everyone in a school needs that training, sadly. Right.
0: Yeah, I think, um, you know, one of the things that, that that we should be working on is that, I mean in reality, let's let's be honest, I mean if someone were to come in, in into this room right now and cause harm to one of us, which one of us is going to be uh, or who's going to be able to render aid sooner? Uh, one of us in this room or a law enforcement officer? Um, and so the same thing applies to a school setting. You know, which is why I say that it's important to have every staff member trained to the same standard, uh, whether it be through the SRP or have access to keys, uh, understanding, you know, what the difference of the lockdown and secure and shelter in place, hold and evacuate means, Um, and then getting into the medical component of, you know, chest seal applications, uh, tourniquet applications, AEDs, first aid, CPR, whatnot, having people the entire staff trained to that standard is a force multiplier not only in your school but even outside oh, of your school Certainly. i mean you've got grandkids you go to a trip with your grandkid. uh you know kid gets injured or someone else gets injured you know imagine every teacher in the united states being trained to that same standard mm-hmm. being able to render aid to to people inside and outside the school i do believe that it would it would reduce uh you know, deaths in these particular types of incidents. So, um, you know, that's something we'll continue to fight. But uh, Tell us about, was it House Bill 435? Yes. Tell us about House Bill 435.
1: Well, in our situation with our shooter still alive and um, not going to trial, we've had families have had no answers. Uh, Many of the families who lost their loved ones, they were not even given an autopsy report. Um, We haven't seen any footage of what really went on um, during the shooting, and we have not seen what the law enforcement response was in our hallways, We as in Uvalde, we, we have not seen any of that. So 435 would give that information out to the victims, it's not to be made public, uh, but just to the victims and their families.
0: Right. Yeah, I think that, that uh, for a lot of people, you know, having the ability to know what happened to their loved one is huge. It's, yeah, you know, they don't
1: know how they died. They have no Well, you can't, you
0: know, I mean, part of the grieving and healing process is having that information so that you know, you know, how your loved one passed. Yeah, it's heartbreaking. And, um, I'm really happy that 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 bill it's it hasn't passed. Yet. It has. Oh, it, it, it has. that one did pass. Yes, yeah.
1: the governor has signed it.
0: Okay. And that was just this week. Yes. Okay. Um because I know like, you know, our good friend Rosie, um you know, I I I check on her frequently. Uh, her son was killed, Chris mm-hmm. was killed in Santa Fe, and for her that's been one of the biggest hang-ups to part of her healing process is She didn't know how her son died. I mean, she knows he was killed by gunshot, but she does not know where, the when, the how, the who. She doesn't know the details. And some people may not want to know those details, but I think for her and for people like her, those are important details, even though they're hurtful to learn. I think that she, now that she has this information, that she can start this healing process of moving forward you know Simple. a
1: little bit of the closure process yeah I'm
0: super happy that 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 the governor signed that I really um, am, am grateful for him because um, you know us at our level you know you are in a completely different space than me uh, I'm an outsider looking in I know that that would help me you know yeah, that would I help know. me move forward and the healing process and I don't think her or any of the other ones have been able to to really move past that because they didn't have yeah. that information. So we're,
1: Yeah, we're very appreciative to Mays Middleton who wrote the bill. Yeah. Um, got that. And also Representative um, Bonin. Yep. Pushed that through. Yeah,
0: Mays has been very instrumental in this process. I'm really happy to call him a friend and to continue to work with him in this process. Um, mm-hmm. I really wish that all politicians were like him. Mm-hmm. Um, because he is truly someone who takes the time to listen. You call him, he calls you back. Yes. You know, yes. Um, you text him, he texts you back. He listens to you as a, as a subject matter expert because whether you believe it or not, you're now a subject matter expert, <laughs> um, you know, inadvertently, but um, having the ability to have, the uh, you know, to, to bend his ear and talk to him about some of the things that need to change. And we're still working on a couple other things. There's some things that I'm still hoping that he can help me, you know, we can kind of address some of these things moving Mm -hmm. forward. But having his, uh, you know, ear helps. Yes. You know, it really, really does. We don't always see eye to eye on everything, and that's okay. Mm -hmm. I think that's what's wrong with our political landscape right now throughout the United States is that um, we need to just agree that sometimes we have to disagree. We don't see things the way that, the other seas you know and that's fine but at the end of the day we still are all Americans we're still Texans we still have a uh, uh, a duty and an obligation to do what's right by people not by Republicans or not by Democrats but by people and so um you know so tell us real quick and we're going to start wrapping up here shortly but how have you overcome some of the stress and anxiety like what How how do you get past some of that? I mean, just if you had to say for other victims, or because we know there's going to be more victims, Mm -hmm. you know, this is not going away. How do you deal
1: with that? Personally, you have so much survivor's guilt when, um, and being able to continue the advocacy, and um, even though there's very, little movement but it's something that I just continue to fight for hmm. and that's helped me gives me a goal um, and before the shooting I was a big runner and that was a really great way to get rid of stress and so I've started to run again I run again not, oh, as, not as much but it's a little harder now yeah. um, but uh, that helps and meditation I've taken up meditation trying good. to get my mind cleared at least for a few moments a day. Right. And that's helped significantly.
0: <clears throat> what about any particular type of therapy? Um, you, are, are you into I've tried that? them all. You've <laughs> tried them all? <laughs> I've
1: tried them all, and, th- and they do help somewhat at the time, and it does mm-hmm. help to talk to a therapist for me um, so that I understood I'm, I'm, I'm not crazy. This is PTSD. And, of um, course. Uh, I also, um, I'm a member of a group on Facebook called The Rebels Project. And this was founded by Columbine Survivors. Okay. And it's only uh, survivors of shootings in this group. That's been very helpful, knowing what other school shooting survivors have lived through and what mm-hmm. they've dealt with over the years and the ups and downs. Um, really just, just talking to them has been extremely helpful.
0: Good. I think, um, I think talking about this stuff getting to a point where you can talk about it is is key I mean for me uh, you know mental health is a real thing that people mm-hmm. whether it be stress induced or whether it be you know biological you have you know mental health issue um, for me uh, it was stress induced um, and one of the best things that I did was go speak to a therapist myself mm-hmm. uh, you know and it's uh, it's it's funny uh, or not necessarily funny but it's very ironic that um, for me having worked in such a high stress high uh, energy and, and, and fast-paced um, you know career uh, having been put in you know stressful situations and and having uh, you know a high standard to always meet and then, uh, you know, uh, going to the school district and then same thing, you know, different you know, high expectations and whatnot. And and we talk about the patterns of behavior in people. And um, we talk about one of the things that usually sets these people off to either want to hurt themselves or hurt others is a triggering event. Uh, with the Santa Fe shooter, I, I don't know. We don't know really what right. his motive we don't have is. any information. Um, you know, um, the, the Uvalde shooter, we're learning more about him, and then we've had multiple since then. But, you know, for me, uh, 2020, I went through, you know, my father had just passed away. And uh, I think that I'd had decades of stress and trauma, um, and then that triggering event for me was my dad's passing, mm-hmm. which led me to kind of going down this pretty dark path, right? And um, I started recognizing what I teach other people in myself. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, uh, it was so very self-destructive and it was me finally realizing that I needed to go speak to someone that helped me and realizing that, hey, it's okay. Even the strongest of us need help occasionally. And so for me, it was going to talk to someone. For you, it seems like it was more self-healing you know where you you kind of isolated yourself and then you started kind of evolving through this process through like you said meditation talking to other victims. Yeah and
1: that's what it is having because no one else on the outside really can understand Mm -hmm. and so having having other victims that you can communicate with. Yeah because
0: um, I can sit here and talk to you about it all day long but I truly don't know what you've gone through what your emotions are. You know, and I think that's a that's a, a common mistake that people make is they think they can relate to you.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: We cannot relate to you, but other victims can. Yeah. Because you've all experienced the same anger, you know, all of the seven signs of you know, of grief, you know, anger and emotion and, and you know, uh, isolation, right. you know, all those things. Uh, don't hold me to, I don't know the, all seven of well, them. But,
1: and you know, and there are different triggers for different people, but we all comprehend what those triggers mean and what those setbacks are and you know and and now every single we have so many shootings now yeah and I, I know I hear about them all and I think so much of the public it just kind of now just washes over them but it's yeah. you feel you it. get, it's
0: like you get traumatized every time you something else it. happens
1: I know what it I know what that fear is when you are in that shooting yeah and so I, it puts me in there it puts me in you know at that outlet mall in yeah. allen i you, it's just it's visceral what they're going through
0: yeah that's a shame uh, it's we we are living in a in a different time you know and i think people need to realize that that you know we're we're probably not going back to a more stable america if anything it looks like we're heading to a, a more disruptive and more violent America, and I think people need to take a deep breath and realize that we're all going through the same stuff. You know, we've got to help each other out, you know, in whatever way we can. Mm -hmm. Um, So uh, last question, what's the one thing that you would recommend to school districts? or not necessarily a one thing. What, what if you had to tell school districts how to make it better for staff, for students, for parents and it can be a 5-minute converse or 5-minute response or a 5-second. What do you think is the first thing that they need to start doing?
1: They need to realize it can happen to them. I think that is the number one issue. No one ever thinks it can happen at their school. If you were really, really scared that this was an imminent thing that could happen, a shooting could happen, I think they would react differently. I think they would make sure those doors were locked. You know, you you protect your kids, you go around at night, you make sure all your doors are locked, and you're making sure no one's getting in the house. That's the way, because it's, I mean, it could happen, and that's the way they need to act. They just cannot comprehend it, because it's too horrific for you to comprehend. You can't put yourself out there, but that's what they've got to do. They have got to act as if that shooter is on their doorstep.
0: Yeah, you know, and I know I said that was the last question, but it, it kind of leads me into a lot of the argument is, well, we don't have the, we don't have the funds to do that. Um, you know, and I've, I've been telling people you know you can't wait on legislation you can't wait on a pot of money to just fall out of the sky for you to do these things right Um, and even if you do wait on legislation you know it's we're in the 88th legislation right now let's say that they do allocate the funds needed for schools to you know do these things those funds probably will not be available until next year every day that you wait is another day you're increasing your risk of something happening. You know, um, everyone thinks that that you know solely we need to be looking at active shooters. But every active shooter before they became homicidal at some point was suicidal. And so mm-hmm. we have a duty and obligation to prevent kids from from killing themselves also because there's a very thin line between suicidal and homicidal. And so it goes back to what we've always said, like I said, what we've always known is behavioral patterns, you know, Santa Fe shooter. He exhibited these things.
1: Oh, he walked around dressed in Columbine attire. Yeah. <clears throat> with the, you know, the long coat and born to kill shirt, and they allowed it.
0: Right. We know that we have individuals that are going around talking about lessons learned from <laughs> Columbine I mean i 'm sorry from Santa Fe, we have individuals walking around or going and presenting in certain conferences talking about lessons learned. How do you feel about that
1: people like that have no soul I mean that is if you are doing that and making money that that is blood money you are making that money off the death of children it 's horrible
0: the administration that was there at the time um, Do you feel like they did enough before and after?
1: Oh no, they did not do enough. Definitely not enough before. I mean there were, there was even a letter sent to the administration when we had that lockdown I mentioned that said the substitutes are not prepared, Cynthia Tisdale, they was having a hard time. She couldn't lock her door, she had nowhere to go, couldn't get into another classroom. So one of the teachers sent a letter to the administration and said we have an issue. They did nothing.
0: What do you think about um, immunity that's granted, sovereign immunity that's granted to these school districts? You think that if that was revoked that they would start taking things more oh, yeah. seriously?
1: Yeah, I, I I understand it to, a, to an extent because a lot of parents get upset about the way things are done in schools. You don't want a yeah, ton, you of, have, ton of lawsuits, but if you have children dying on your watch, something went wrong. You, well, so
0: yeah, I mean, let's say let's take Ms. Tisdale for example. Parkland happens in February. Y'all have a scare. A letter is written that says that substitutes are not prepared. They have no way to lock their classroom doors. And then a month and a half later you have a tragic incident at Santa Fe High School where Miss Tisdell, a mm-hmm. substitute teacher, and Miss Perkins, mm-hmm. well, she was a substitute yes. teacher as well, and you, a substitute teacher, three substitute teachers now wounded and deceased, because no one took the initiative to address that. Right. Therefore, I think that someone's negligent. Mm-hmm. So we'll see how all that plays out in prosecution if this individual ever goes before court. Um,
1: But if they had that concern that potentially they could be held accountable, I think they would act differently.
0: I agree with that. You know, I think sovereign immunity has a place, um, but in these particular incidents, there there definitely needs to be accountability. Mm -hmm. You know, I I always tell people You know, and I used to catch a lot of slack because you know how I was, I was very involved, very hands-on, and that frustrated a lot of people. And like I used to tell them, I, I have a duty and an oath to protect everyone in this facility, whether they be a staff member or the student, as if they're my own family. I treated that campus or that district, every single kid was my kid, every single staff member was, you know, I treated like a spouse or, or, a, or a friend um, because we have a duty and obligation to make sure that they all go home safe. Right. And I think if we think that way, then more things will get done. So, right. any last comments?
1: I appreciate your time. Yeah. This is great. I mean, you've done so yeah, much for you. us, you've been a great supporter of us these past few years. And I really appreciate your
0: friendship. I appreciate you. Thank you, guys. We appreciate it.